Welcome back to Arab American Psycho. This week's guest is an Egyptian-born and London-raised journalist and author of The Greater Freedom. Welcome, Alia Moreau. Hey, how are you? Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. We were just chatting a bit before we started recording, and I was fangirling a little bit because you are like the embodiment of like what I believe Arab women should be. So I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Oh my God, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, super casual, no pressure. You just might crush all my hopes and dreams. Fine. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I, like I said, I was stalking you online, doing my research, my thing. And first of all, I can't wait to read your book because, and I'm actually mad that I didn't read it before we like recorded. And like, I literally ordered it on Amazon because I'm like, I have to read this book. So I want to talk about kind of how the book came to be. Like, was there something that happened that like inspired it? Or was it just kind of like an accumulation of like your life and you just kind of got to this point where you're like, this needs to be a thing for young Arab women? Yeah, well, it, it was a bit of both really. Like I, um, as you said, I'm Egyptian born. I was raised in London since uh, the age of eight years old. But like I go back and forth to Egypt all the time and we moved back there for a year when I was 12. So I've always kind of felt very um, rooted in, in both my cultures, but at the same time kind of had imposter syndrome from both. Um, like I felt like I didn't actually, I, well, I wasn't really fully either of those things. And, you know, I've been a journalist for like almost 10 years now, but it, again, because of that, I guess it was never really something that I addressed in my journalism. Like I used to write about music and, you know, general social commentary and kind of internet culture and all of that kind of stuff. And I never really brought in my like identity as a Middle Eastern woman. And I think as I got a bit older and sort of started to feel a bit more comfortable, you know, both with kind of my ability to to write and to use my words to say what I wanted them to say. And then also just with who I am, um, I felt like it was really important to kind of just share my story. Like there was never anything that I felt like I related to, you know, in the mainstream media in the West that kind of had anything to do with me or my friends or, you know, any, any of the world as I knew it. Um, and I just felt like it was kind of my responsibility. Like my parents are very open-minded. Again, I'm a journalist. I sort of had this bird's eye view of, of both cultures. So I felt like, who am I, like, why am I waiting for someone else to do this? And obviously everyone has individual stories and I, yeah, I wanted, I wanted to tell mine basically. So the book, um, kind of came about from that. It's nonfiction, part memoir, part cultural commentary, so I very much use my life experiences and I kind of go all out like to the extent that some people are like, did you really, did you really write that? Um, <laughs> and then I kind of interviewed a lot of other Middle Eastern women as well. And I have a lot, a lot of research in there to sort of, I guess, ground my experiences in facts and like making wider, bigger points, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And I, and I definitely kind of feel you on, you know, wanting to kind of talk about your life with it being part memoir, but also kind of this cultural commentary where you're kind of taking other people's experiences into account. Because I think that for the, for me as an Arab American, like I can meet other Arab Americans that maybe there are certain parts of their upbringing that resonate with me. But for the most part, I feel like we're all as humans, you know, so incredibly different. And when you're kind of putting out this resource for women so that they can feel more seen and understood. I think it's really nice to not only share your personal experience, but the experience of other women who've kind of lived 
similar lives, but you know, maybe they've had just different experiences that shape them in different ways. And I think it's really important to kind of highlight all of the differences because, you know, women, people, society loves to put women in boxes. It's just their favorite fucking thing to do. And I think that as an Arab woman, I experienced that so much. Just people look at me and want to see something and they're shocked when I'm anything other than what they thought I was going to be like, pleasantly surprised for the most part but I'm just like why are you surprised like why did you make these assumptions about me is it because I'm Arab is it because I wear a hijab like why is it so shocking to you that you know I'm interested in music or you know art like you know why is that so shocking yeah and I think it's really reductive and it ends up you know with us sort of putting ourselves in in sort of weird boxes as well like one of the you know in the first page of my introduction I write about how I was in a cab and um, the taxi driver was like, where are you from? And I was like, oh, I'm from Egypt. And he couldn't believe it. He literally spun around in his seat and he looked at me and he was like, oh, I thought you were Spanish because Arab women are always veiled. And I was like, really? Like, really really not. (laughs) (laughs) Like there are so many. And actually, it's so funny because yesterday I got tagged in this post on Twitter and it was a picture of me and like three other Arab women. And, and the tweet said, read something like, oh, like, look, Arab women look different to each other. And like, they have different, like, they're not all exactly the same. And I was like, uh, no, no shit. shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, no, usually people and like Arabs the Arab region is so broad. Like you can be Arab and first of all, not even speak the same dialect, let alone look anything alike. Like people are always like shocked. Like, Oh, you're so fair. How are you Arab? I'm like, yeah, some Arabs are really fair skinned. Like some Arabs are darker in tone. Like there's, I really feel like Arabs are so diverse, but yet the media still portrays us in this just very, kind of simplified way that I feel like doesn't even kind of encompass any Arab that actually is real outside of like Aladdin. No, uh, well, yeah, I agree. And I think that's why I'm so excited to chat to you. And I just feel like there's, you know, the more, the more I look, or maybe there's just more and more, I just keep seeing, we're just telling our own stories increasingly. And I just think that's so important. Like we don't need to wait for anyone. Um, And I think it's very empowering. And yeah, I think it's so, so important. I believe it so strongly. Like I always say it's easier to be yourself if you can see yourself. And I think that, you know, as much as it's important for the wider world to see that there's nuance within a culture or within a person, even it's also very important for us within that culture to be able to recognize and understand that so we can be free to be ourselves ultimately. And I think that you saying free to be ourselves is like so important because that's something that I feel so strongly. It's something that I really, truly believe in. And like, I think a lot of young Arab women really struggle with that because our culture is so strong. Our cultural presence is very much so a part of our lives. And even for me, I didn't grow up in a very cultural household, but that culture was still there because I really feel like that Arab culture is, yeah, it's just very present. And so it's kind of hard to feel like you, you almost feel like, well, no one else has ever done this. I don't know anyone else who's ever done this. What's going to happen if I kind of break through this cultural barrier? That's exactly it. And that's pretty much exactly what my 
my whole book's about. Like the title is The Greater Freedom. And there's like an epigraph which basically says freedom to be oneself is all very well. The greater freedom is not to be oneself. And that that's you know exactly what you're talking about. There are all of these ideologies and ideas of what we're supposed to want, how we're supposed to look, what our lives should look like. And in each of my chapters, that's how they're set out. Like when you're, when you learn how you're supposed to look, like when you're not supposed to like sex, like all of these things. And then I kind of deep, like use my personal experiences and kind of essentially each chapter kind of concludes with like, but you can just should do what you want. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) this is all the things that we've been told. And then it's, it's up to us really to sort of unpick that, see what we agree with, what we don't agree with and kind of make our own decisions. Exactly. And I, and I think that that is something that I've believed in. And and it took me a long time to kind of understand why it was easier for me than it might be for other, you know, Arabs And I think it really comes down to like the household that you grow up in. And my parents were very much not your typical Arab parents. And they were much so they they were, they were very religious. However, they were very understanding, which I think was important for me that they were so flexible. And, and, you know, they were kind of like, here are the tools we're going to give you, but then ultimately you're going to make your own decisions. And we understand that and kind of having that for me felt like such a privilege as I grew older. And I realized like, oh, other people can't just talk to their parents this way, like their parents will be like, mad or disappointed. And so I definitely do kind of have to take a moment to really appreciate that kind of privilege that I had growing up in a household where I was given this kind of room to be who I want to be and still know that I'm going to be loved unconditionally by my parents. And I don't think that a lot of people have that kind of reassurance. That's exactly it. And I think that, you know, it's so, it's so much more difficult, obviously, to, to, make your own decisions and to go against what's supposed to be happening or go against the grain if you don't have that unconditional love from your parents. Um, and it's, it's difficult. Like sometimes I get, I get girls, like I've had, had such great feedback to the book and I sometimes get young girls, you know, messaging me and saying, well, what do you recommend? Like how, how should I get my family to accept this? Or And it's so difficult to give them advice because again, I'm very conscious of that as well, that my family were very supportive and, and you know, as much as I sort of rubbed up against them when I was younger, especially on a number of things, they ultimately <laughs> were always kind of there for me. So it's very hard to say, well, fuck them. Don't give a shit. Do what you want. Yeah. You, you can't say that. Exactly. And it's because I also don't believe that. Like, and I, and there are certain things that I do that I'm not doing solely to please my parents, but I am taking them into consideration in a way that you would take someone that you love into consideration before you make a decision. Obviously, I'm not going to stop myself from doing things that make me happy. But if there's something that I can do in a certain way to make it easier for my parents to digest, I'm going to take those extra steps because that's what you do when you love someone. And and my parents are in their 70s and they're from Palestine. So like the fact that they're even cool enough with half the shit I do, I'm like, you know what? I can do this for you. It's yeah. easy for me to do. And if it is easy for me to do and to make it more digestible for you, I'll take those extra steps to do that. Exactly. No, I think that's such a good point. It's not about doing things just for the opposition of them, right? It's like doing like just, yeah, being being happy as much as possible, but and also not kind of pissing everyone off for no reason. Yeah. And that's not to say that I don't do things that piss my parents off. I do things that piss my parents off all the time, but it's like, it's kind of like, 
still explaining to them, listen, I know that this is going to piss you off, but this is why I need to do it. And trying to kind of say it to them in a way that I think that they can comprehend and kind of not, I feel like that sounds like I'm telling, saying my parents are idiots. They're not, they're very intelligent people, but they're just born in such a different cultural course, that And we they, live in a it, completely different world yeah. as well. A hundred percent. And it's just like, how can I say this to my father in a way that will make sense to him? And so I try to think of experiences that he has, like shared experiences and, and kind of connect them so that he can get it. And it's literally worked like a charm. Like as long as you talk to someone, I think in a way that they can understand, I really think that it helps kind of make these conversations so much easier because when something is relatable to you, you can kind of wrap your head around it a bit easier. It's so true. And I think it's so, you know, that's, that's such a been such a big important part of the conversation over the last few months of like, you know, in particular in light of all the black lives matter protests and, you know, a lot of, a lot of, well, a lot of cultures have, you know, anti-black racism, including Middle Eastern culture. And, you know, there's been this conversation of, okay, we need to have these conversations with our parents. Like we need to, it's our responsibility to be more ethical, more progressive, more all of these things than the generation before us, of course, and to sort of bridge the gap. And, and you know, it's important to have uncomfortable conversations with people to, to sort of, debunk a lot of a lot of this incorrect kind of notions you know exactly and and I really find that these uncomfortable situations that I've had to go through our conversations they're never as bad as I think they're gonna be which is always like such a pleasant surprise like yeah. like because you build it up so much in your head and you're like no this is gonna be horrible this is gonna happen but I think that if you come if you approach it from an educated kind of perspective it won't be as difficult I think as we kind of build it up to be no I think you're right I think that's um that's really the crux of it isn't it is to kind of find the shared sort of humanity and and always kind of try and level like reason on that level yeah and i i read somewhere that you talked a little bit about uh, or maybe i watched an interview where you're talking about the burden of responsibility for people of color yeah. and that's something that i feel very very deeply because I live in America. I'm very visibly Muslim. I mean, I have a scarf on my head. Everyone knows that I'm a Muslim. And I get a lot of kind of people attacking me for being a certain way or behaving a certain way because they're like, you're a representation of Islam. How dare you do X, Y, and Z, which, you know, I could give a fuck, but it's still this constant burden that people are putting onto you. And like, is that something that you, I mean, obviously it's something you've experienced because you've spoken about it, but like, how have you kind of handled, you know, that burden that people put onto you? Yeah, well, I think it comes again back to this fact that there's so few, um, there's so few examples. Like I, I interviewed Rami Youssef a couple of months ago, you know, awesome. when, yeah, when second season of the show was coming out and I asked him that same question. I said, you know, what do you, what do you do about that? And he was kind of saying, it was interesting, his viewpoint, actually, where he was like, yeah, there's, a, of course, a burden of responsibility on me, but even more, there's sort of this burden on the viewer, you know, this young sort of, you know, just to make up who, who the viewer is, but like this <laughs> young, like Middle Eastern person watching my show, for example, and they've never seen themselves before. Of course, they're going to be disappointed if it doesn't represent them in the exact way that they would hope it would. Um, so I think it's also understanding that as well. And, and I think that the only thing that 
you know you can do about that and that I really try and do is just try and really stay as authentic to myself as possible like there's no way that I can tell every single story nor should that nor should I have to like I think all that we can do and what I try to do is again be as authentic as possible and sort of open the door so that other people can tell their stories right right and I think that the more people who do kind of what you do which is like very honest storytelling the more people will like kind of find themselves in different people rather than putting that burden on one specific person. And I think it really comes down to there's such a lack of representation. So when someone finally, like you were saying with the interview with Rami, when someone finally comes out and is doing something, you're so disappointed that it's not a reflection of you because you want to identify with someone, you want to feel seen and you want to find someone who's like you ultimately. And I know that I, that's something I didn't have growing up. And, and I kind of just look to my mom and my older sisters and I'm lucky to have older sisters where I can kind of see myself in them and see what they're doing and the paths that they take and use that as kind of like the, in the place of like what a role model would be. But I think that young people nowadays really need to see that in the media more than even I did. Yeah, no, I think it re- especially now because there's so much um, negative press around what it means as opposed to there just being nothing. <laughs> um, so it's almost like, yeah, we need something stronger to sort of root ourselves in. And I think that at the same time, it, you know, it's very important to kind of see the nuances that make us up as humans and for the sort of shared humanity again to come through. Like I think one of the things that made me so happy in the, in the feedback to my book was how many people from different cultures and different religions would message me saying that they related as well um, just to the female experience, you know, the experience of living in a patriarchal world, the kind of pressures that were, that are placed on us as women again are, are cross-cultural. And I think that, the more honest that you are with your storytelling, the more human it is. And therefore the more that anyone can relate. Yeah. And I, and it's so interesting through this podcast, you know, I've interviewed a lot of Arab women, but I've interviewed just women from all over. And it's, we all just have this such similar kind of experiences because we are women living in this world. And it's just, it's kind of the same for all of us. Like we all kind of have to deal with the same bullshit, the same gender norms that are forced upon us, the same expectations of like, you need to be married and have children by this time or else you're like a crazy cat lady. All of these things that again, society loves to put women into boxes so much. It's their fucking favorite thing in the world. But you know, it's, it's so interesting when you start kind of talking about these things, like you said, super openly and honestly, how many people from all walks of lives can really connect with it, not just other Arab women. Yeah, it's so powerful. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I wrote, like the book was such an entrance for me into this world. Like I was so, I hadn't really thought, I had felt it, but I hadn't really thought about the, these things that much before. Um, and you know, over the, over the last few months, especially in lockdown, I was watching this, this great show, Mrs. America, um, which is, I've never seen it. it. Yeah, it's really good. It's it's relatively new and it basically go, it follows like Gloria Steinem and the kind of second wave feminists in the U S and something that they said in the show that really kind of stuck out to me was how, when these, when women started to come together that like, and each share, share their experiences, basically they started to realize, Oh, okay. This is not like my 
problem that happens in my house or in my head or in my life. These are actually shared experiences. And that kind of empowered them to sort of come together and, and, you know, try and make some change in the world, basically. And I think that it really does go to show the kind of importance of sharing and connecting and realizing that nothing is ever a just you problem. Yeah, yeah. It's it, And it's it's kind of comforting, though, in a way. Like, I, I think that the more that especially women are speaking much more candidly and there are these podcasts and so many different resources for women to connect, it's so nice to hear women talking about how, you know, they might have gone through a similar experience to you and then hearing how they handled it. And I think that we are moving in such a great direction right now. And I'm just, it's, it's a very exciting time. It is. It really does feel like that. I think that, you know, especially again, like the last few months, I think have caused like a real awakening in everyone's yeah. conscience and consciousness. Um, and that's been really powerful to, to witness, I think, as well. Yeah, because I think that humanity is kind of coming to a place where they realize they should care about what's happening to other people, even though it does not directly affect them. And I think that it's unfortunate that it's taken us so long to kind of come to that place. But at the same time, it's, it's progress. And I think progress is always good. And I think that people are, you know, really, really starting to be very aware of what's happening in the world. Like even with TikTok, like you see these 13 year old kids talking about things that like, how do they even know about these things happening in places in the world that they probably never studied in school, but it's so refreshing to see that they're so aware. Yeah, it's amazing. It's so inspiring, honestly. And I think that, you know, if anything, the pandemic has kind of showed us how connected we all are, like that, you know, what happens in one corner of the world can very easily affect the whole rest of the world. And we're all connected, you know, so it is very important to care, even if it's something that your privilege shields you from. Exactly. And and I think that that's something that I was surprised that even I had to work on because, you know, with kind of the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, which has been going on since like the early 2000s, but, you know, since just forever, now. I suppose. Yeah. And so for me, I, you know, I, I worked for the state attorney's office so for a while for like five years as like a victim's counselor. And so I worked a lot with law enforcement. And so that was something that was difficult for me to kind of digest that, hey, listen, something needs to change because I had positive experiences with law enforcement, but I had to kind of take myself out of that and realize, hey, just because I had positive experiences with law enforcement that does not make it the norm. And it's not the norm. Most people don't have these positive experiences with law enforcement. And I had to take a step back. And I was shocked at how difficult it was for me to criticize them. Like, I was almost like upset about it. Like, why are people saying that they're all bad? They're not all bad. But I was like, mm, let's take a step back. And let's really look at this, not from just my personal experience and really take into account all of these other people's experiences. And and I consider myself pretty like, you know, open-minded and it was very hard for me. I was shocked at how hard it was for me. Yeah, no, I totally hear that. In, in Egypt recently, there's this sort of Me Too movement that's happening. Um, and, you know, a number of, of, of guy, like men in, in our like social circles basically have been accused and, and some have been arrested for 
sexual assault and and trigger warning rape and you know all all of like horrible horrible behavior and there's been a lot of that kind of conversation happening where people are like oh well just because you have not had a bad experience with this person it doesn't mean that they that they haven't done what they've been accused of and kind of the importance of believing people whether or not we have evidence in our own lives if you see what I mean like people's testimonies are, are are worthy regardless of whether or not it's happened to you kind of thing. And I think that that's something that society is kind of growing to be better about. But like, I, I think we're so used to kind of being like, well, don't believe it unless there's evidence or like guilty until proven. But like, no, I think the approach should always be believe the victim until you have a reason not to believe them because as someone who worked with um you know survivors of sexual abuse and domestic violence it's very seldom it's very seldom do people just like decide i'm gonna fucking make this up yeah. that's not that's not a thing that's like happening it's in fact it's it's a complete opposite it takes so much for them to come forward that and the reason it takes so much for them to come forward is because Unfortunately, society has let them down time and time again by questioning them and supporting the person who put them in the situation and believing that person over them, which it's usually a man. And it just, I do think it's definitely getting better. And it's nice to hear that, you know, there is kind of this Me Too movement happening in Egypt. That's really, that's progress. That's huge progress. Oh my God. Yeah. That people are even like, it's been in mainstream news. Like the laws have been changed. Pe- men have been arrested. Like it's, it's sad to say, but that is huge. That is huge. And I think that it will affect so many future generations of women and hopefully, and and I feel this way, like, you know, I think that sexual assault is something where I've thought about, like, how can we, kind of prevent this from happening you know what I mean like what what can we do to make this less prevalent in so many people's lives and I think it comes down to like having conversations about it I think that's the root of it is like understanding sexuality consent sexual abuse having conversations about these things that were kind of like taboo or considered to be inappropriate normalizing these conversations so that younger generations can have a better understanding of it and maybe prevent them from, you know, subjecting people to this type of trauma. Well, that's the thing, because I think that shame ultimately ends up working in the favor of like the powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So like, if you are made to feel, you know, that especially as women and, you know, in Egypt and in the Middle East, you're not supposed to have like sex you're not supposed to talk about your body you're not supposed to want anything to do with your body you know all of these kind of things and that ends up again like working so much in in our disfavor because it allows people to take advantage it means that you don't have the necessary you know information and kind of resources to make good decisions um it it ends up putting you in in very dangerous situations a lot of the time so I think that conversation is imperative and as we were saying earlier that kind of open conversation in households as well that if something happens you feel comfortable to speak to your mom or your dad um that you feel able to say this makes me feel uncomfortable that you know we're taught to trust our own instincts rather than everything being naive and wrong and shameful 
I honestly, the word "rib" just makes me want to fling my body out of a window. I really wish we could just like remove that from our vocabulary. Like the shame culture is something that I think just is the root of so many issues within the Arab society. Like, like you're saying, like it gives these abusers the power because they know in the back of their minds that like, well, who are you going to tell? You're going to be so ashamed, even yeah. though there's, you should not feel ashamed about that. That's not something you should, you were, you were a victim in a situation. You did nothing to deserve it. There should be no shame tied to it. And, and they use that to their advantage, which is, disgusting amongst other actions that they take but it really is something that I think we need to as a society overcome and I think with all these conversations that are happening and and it does result in backlash I mean one of my favorite reviews on my podcast is in all capital letters sex is haram that's the review that's the review sex is haram which I'm like I mean Technically, no, sex is not haram, but like, I get what you're saying, but like, you really just phrase this incorrectly. Well, like, like literally, you- none of us would be on this planet. So. Yeah, literally, like, no, sex is not haram, but like, I, I see what you're saying, but people really do get so kind of offended by women talking about sex and and they kind of accuse you of like, you're trying to encourage women to go have premarital sex. And it's like, I'm not trying to encourage anyone to do anything other than foster healthy conversations. That's what I'm trying to do. Everyone is in control of what they do or don't do with their body. That's their decision. All I'm trying to do is talk about it and normalize it so that women can have healthy relationships with their body and understand that this body is for them, not for someone else. Exactly that. Exactly that. Like, it's almost like we're infantilized, you know, like we're like babies and we're not able to make our own decisions. Um, and it's, yeah, what well, goes back to the mentality of you're a jewel, you're a diamond, you need to be covered, you're a fruit that flies are going to come on, you know, like all of oh, that. God. Bessim Yusuf, actually, he, I love him. He's, he's an Egyptian comedian and he really, he, put out a really great video when the Me Too movement was first starting to kind of happen in Egypt a couple of weeks ago. And he said, you know, as soon as you, as soon as you say that, as soon as you say a woman is a fruit, as soon as you say a woman is a diamond, you've dehumanized her. So the conversation's already fucked from there. Right, 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 right. And like, honestly, like there, I'm sure you've seen this meme that was circulating a few years ago of like the the lollipop without the wrapper versus the lollipop with the wrapper. And I was like disturbed at how many people I knew who were like reposting it. And I was like, holy shit. Like you, you, you agree with this? Like what the fuck? Like it was just like shocking, mind boggling to me how many people were like reposting it. Like, yeah, like fuck. Yeah. Like women who are uncovered attract flies and bugs. Like what the fuck are you even saying? You're comparing yourself to a lollipop. Like, do you understand what's happening right now? Also, as we see in the middle East all the time, even women who are covered get harassed and looked at and stuff like it's actually nothing to do with that. I mean, I lived in the middle East for like four years. When I was in high school, I lived in Dubai and I, have never been hit on more in my life. Like, honestly, and I wore a hijab and like, I've literally never been more aggressively hit on. But I think it, I'm I'm glad that I had that experience in the Middle East because it really put things into perspective with, for me, because 
sex is so taboo and everything is so segregated, like men on one side, women on the other side. Like I went to an all girls school for like a year and anytime the boys would even like see us remotely from like a distance, it was like they were wild animals. Like it was fucking insane. And I'm like, this is what happens when you're constantly trying to tell people like stay apart, don't talk to each other. Uh, don't look at each other. Like it, it creates this unhealthy kind of view of the opposite sex. hundred percent. I think anything that's banned or like, you know, made into this huge, like, no, no, it always ends up having the opposite impact. Like it's, you know, scientifically proven, like kids who are kids who are presented with something and said like, Oh, you're like anything that you're banned. I can't remember the exact examples. Now I have this in my book, but like anything that you're literally told you're not allowed scientifically proven that you're going to want to do it like way more. For sure, because it's like, ooh, why, why are you telling me not to do it? Exactly. What, 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 what I need to investigate this for myself because I think innately humans want to discover things and make decisions for themselves. So it's almost like a little bit of rebellion, but also just that innate curiosity that all humans have. Yeah, I think balance is always the way forward. Like, you know, again, open conversation, balance, like it, it, that's that's the only way otherwise we're all just like caged animals all the time exactly and and I think that you know kind of talking about not feeling Arab enough I know that you talked about that a lot in your book that's something that I felt a lot growing up like not feeling Arab enough not feeling American enough and kind of not being sure where I fit in. But at the same time, I'm kind of glad that like, I kind of was like, okay with it. Like it wasn't something that was like causing distress for me. But I think that a lot of people do find it to be this very difficult kind of uh, situation to overcome not connecting with either culture completely and not feeling like they fit in. Um, Is that something that you experienced? Yeah, definitely. Like, and I still feel like that. Like my accent is such an amalgamation of things, you know, so (laughs) even wherever I am, people are like, where are you from? Like, what is this? When I'm in Egypt, I feel very British when I'm here, depend like when I'm in London, depending on who I'm with, like I have some Middle Eastern friends. I have like, if I'm with like a very British friend, I often feel like I'm very Egyptian. Um, So there's definitely, definitely a lot of that. I think what I've kind of tried to do and I think what happened quite organically is is sort of understand the ways in which that's a strength um you know it it means that you essentially have this bird's eye view of of culture it means that you can have a little bit more freedom perhaps to to pick and choose the elements that you want to keep um and it, it means that your experience and your viewpoints I think are a lot richer but I know for sure that a lot of people definitely struggle with that yeah, and I I really like kind of your approach to it in that it's kind of like uh, something that we should feel lucky to have. It's this bird's eye view, and then also like that's kind of how I viewed it, which I guess I never really thought about it, but I just felt like it made me feel more worldly. Like I kind of understood different people better. Like I can connect with more people. I can talk about, I have more shared experience with a larger group of people because I am not just one thing. I'm more multifaceted than that. And so I can connect with Arab people, but then I can also connect with, you know, people who are from Jamaica because 
their culture is actually shockingly the same as Arab culture in a lot of ways. And like, but I can also connect with, you know, white American people because I grew up in that society. So I know it very well. Yeah, I think it's really special. And I think it's about sort of as much as possible, understanding again, and sort of accepting the strengths of that, like none of us would be like the world would not be the way that it is if we didn't have these diverse cultures, like especially growing up in London, you know, there's so many like restaurants from different cultures all on the same street. Like there's so many people from different places. And I think that's what really adds to that, the kind of vibrancy and, and, and makes it what it is. And I think, you know, especially over the last, however many years the internet's been around, like we do have this sort of shared global culture as well. Um, which I think is, is, is really interesting. Like I can connect, like I'm on, I love TikTok and I spend way too long Same. on there. I love But TikTok. like, I see people from all around the world and I'm like, yes, yeah. You know, like you can relate to, like we have shared memes that we understand all around the world. And I think that's really cool. And I hope that that means that we don't feel so much that we need to ascribe obviously we should be proud of where we come from and all of the different things that make us who we are but I think we should also understand that there are way more things that make us who we are than just where we were born or where our parents come from yeah and I think that for me growing up I think I took being Arab kind of I didn't take advantage of it, I guess. I don't even know if that's the right way to describe it. But I feel like I didn't do much to try to connect with my Arab heritage. And as I've gotten older, it's something that I really cherish. And I take time to like learn more about like I'm always trying to like cook Arab food and listen to Arabic music just because I want to feel more connected to it. It's something that I've prioritized now as I'm getting older. And there's a part of me that almost wishes that I wasn't so not even obsessed, but like so focused on being American that I took more time to be, allow myself to explore being Arab. I think it's natural though. Like I feel like when we're younger, when we're young, all we want to do is fit in with other people. Like, and it's again, like, I think there's like evidence from like, I don't know where that basically it's important. Like, especially when we're teenagers, we really feel the need to kind of identify with our peers and our classmates. And we don't want to be singled out. We don't want to be the, the the brown one in the class or we don't want to be the, you know, and then the older you get, the more you kind of settle into yourself and the more you don't mind your differences, the more actually you become proud of them. I've definitely felt that as well. I actually used to hate, so like I used to go to Arabic school when I was younger. My parents would force me to go literally every Saturday. And I was like, no, I'm sick. I like, I can't go. And I just made excuses every time. And, you know, the whole, like the entirety of lockdown now, I've been learning Arabic on Duolingo. And it's been so, like, I'm so happy now that I can kind of read very slowly, but I can sort of read a lot well I couldn't read anything that's amazing yeah so I'm so happy and it's something that is I just find so hilarious because I used to kick up such a huge fuss and now of my own volition basically I'm like learning studying every single day yeah my mom definitely during quarantine specifically I've never had any urge to cook in my life like I am a Postmates Uber Eats food (laughs) delivery kind of girl or like I eat like a two-year-old so it's fine like I can make myself like a cheese sandwich oh my god you sound like me (laughs) but during quarantine I don't know what 
I just got super inspired to start cooking. And the more I cooked, the more I was like, I want to make Arabic food. Like I want to make, like, I want to make food that my mom makes. And I'm like texting my mom. I'm like, uh, do you have active yeast? And she's like, <laughs> why, why, why do you need active? I'm like, do you have uh semolina? She's like, how do you even know what that is? Like, what is wrong? What are you making? I'm like, oh, I'm making men at each. And she's like, what you're making? What? Like, she was like, dude, are you good? Like, are you okay? Like, where's my <laughs> child? And what have you done with her? But there's something about just kind of you deciding, Hey, I want to connect to this because like you were saying, like when I was a kid, my dad himself would teach me how to write and read in Arabic. And I used to, he used to bribe me. He would be like, if you sit down with me for an hour and like write and read, I'll buy you a Barbie. Oh, and I was God. like, well, there was less kicking and screaming involved. Cause I'm like, I like Barbies. I want the Barbie. I'll do this for you, Baba. <laughs> Shout out to Baba. Like, you know what I mean? And like, I, I remember being so frustrated when I was younger that my dad wouldn't speak to me in English. He would only speak to me in Arabic. And it was so frustrating because I couldn't articulate myself in Arabic. Yeah. And when I would speak to him in English, he would ignore me, which was a little douchey, but now I get why he was doing it. He wanted me so badly to speak Arabic. And I'm so grateful for it now. Like I can speak Arabic and I've ba basically done nothing in my adult life to try to, it's just when you speak something when you're younger, it's just so much easier. So there is this nice feeling though, like you were saying about going on Duolingo and deciding, Hey, I'm ready to learn how to read Arabic and making that decision on your own that it's like, this really fun, exciting experience to connect with yourself on a deeper level. Yeah. And I think it also gives you insight into things in a way that you wouldn't previously. Like, again, when the, all the Me Too stuff was happening in Egypt, I, for the first time, was able to kind of read what people were writing when they were saying stuff in Arabic, or even to kind of my Arabic improved, like to, to speaking as well through doing that. So because of my vocabulary, I guess. So sort of being able, being able to be privy to what Arabic speakers who don't speak English or don't write in English are saying was like a whole new world. It, it, it's like these are, I would never have been able to tap into this information or these viewpoints had I not been able to understand or read Arabic. I would only ever get the English version. And the English version really is just not the same. I really feel like Arabic is the most kind of intense language and like it's so hard to translate Arabic words into English because one word in Arabic means like seven different things yeah. so it's like it never really fully translates and then when you have the ability to like read it and actually understand it I feel like it just has such a deeper impact there are definitely words that I have to just drop into my English sentences as well like like halas, for example, like you can't yeah. say finish, you know, like it doesn't no, have the same. That would be really weird if you were just going around saying finish. <laughs> it doesn't have the same feeling at all. Or like yalla, yalla, you know, like you have to just say that in Arabic. And it's so funny on TikTok, someone posted because I don't know if you've ever, your parents grew up telling you Naiman when you come out of the shower. No, I don't they know didn't, but I've seen that meme, which is hilarious. Yeah. So like my parents always said Naiman to me and I never really thought about it because I'm like, I don't know, it's just something that I never thought about. How do I translate Naiman? And mm -hmm. literally there is no translation to the word Naiman. Like there is no way to translate it into English. And I'm like, holy shit, that's so weird that there is a literal word that you cannot translate. Like it only makes sense in Arabic. Yeah. What was it that they translated it to? Like congratulations on being clean or something. Yeah. <laughs> Which is such a funny thing. And like, I guess I, I, it's, 
it's just something that you don't think about. And like my parents, I've always said Naeem to my nieces and nephews. Like it just kind of carried on. And I never thought about what Naeem means. And it's like, yeah, it literally means like the closest uh, translation would be congratulations on being close. It's so funny. It's so funny. Oh my God. But yeah, I just, it's, it is really nice though, like growing older and then kind of appreciating this Arab culture. And I think a lot more people who are, younger are discovering that at an earlier age, which I'm a little bit like envious of because I'm like, I wish I had appreciated my Arab heritage more when I was younger rather than kind of pushing it aside and associating it with being like my parents. Like, you know what I mean? And my parents are cool. I like them. But like, I was like, that's their thing. And this is my thing. Again, I think that's what's so great about like the internet and, and the increased kind of representation now is that there is just so much more that we can like connect with. Like I've been loving seeing all the like Arabs of TikTok. I just find it absolutely amazing. And I'm, I relate to it so much. And a lot of them are much younger and they're pulling pranks on their parents and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And there's so much more of this now, like Drake rapping in Arabic, you know, like there's so much more of this that kind of makes us cool. You know, it's unfortunate that, that we need that, but yeah, I guess that's 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 the world. But it's 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 unfortunate that we need it. But at the same time, it's like everyone should be able to feel like their culture is cool. Yeah, and and it and it does take a little bit of society not you know considering us to be terrorists yeah. for that to happen. Unfortunately, I mean, when literally that's how you know the media views you. It's 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 difficult to feel like, oh no, yeah, this is really cool. Yeah. Like, you know, the, the media, the, the media thinks that we're like the most terrible people and dangerous and whatever people should be afraid of us. But like, it's hard for like a 14 year old to be like, no, I'm still really fucking cool. Yeah, no, it's so true. And I think it's just really awesome how we're reclaiming what it means yeah. to be Middle Eastern and, and what it means to be Muslim. And, and it's very important again for, for the, the wider world, but then, you know, also for ourselves within our own culture to understand the nuances of that. Yeah. And it's, it's so crazy. I can only imagine how like younger people feel because I'm 31 years old and it's still like so exciting for me. Like I'm like, when I come across women like you or like, you know, anyone who's Arab and doing something in the creative space, it's so exciting for me because I didn't even know that that was a thing that could be possible when I was younger. When I was growing up, it just, you know, you were a doctor and, or or like an engineer. And and that was kind of the, the, you know, the trajectory, but like seeing Arab women being best-selling published authors like yourself, I'm like, holy shit. And like to write about the things that you write about, like the Middle Eastern female experience. And it's just, for me, it's still so exciting. No, me too. I feel exactly the same. Like I'm like every time I see a, like a cool Middle Eastern woman doing something awesome, I'm just like, yes. Like I feel like yeah. we're all standing on each other's shoulders, you know? And I think yeah. one of my favorite expressions is a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. And I just think we need to like light up the world, you know, like let's all just like light each other's candles. And yeah. And I think for women in general, like we could get so much further if we just learned that someone else's success is not taking away from our own. And like, if anything, it brings more success for us to support each other. And I, I do think that we're moving in that direction now, which is also something that I'm so happy about. I feel like there, even though there's so much terrible shit happening in the world, there's still so much progress happening that I really try to like 
remind myself of because I think that it's so easy to fall into the space of like everything fucking sucks in the world right now. But I find that reminding myself of these positive movements that are happening and, and the growth that's happening, especially online, it's just it's incredible. And I think history is kind of being made. Yeah, no, I think so too. And I think it is very important to keep reminding ourselves of the positive stuff because otherwise it just becomes so disheartening. Like I've definitely had that over the last few weeks and and kind of, yeah, weeks, I suppose, where I felt really kind of, oh my God, everything's awful. Like shit, like we're going to just be here forever in our houses and like everything's falling apart. Like I was like freaking out. And then I kind of had to remind myself, like I actually went on a little staycation with my mom and like my brother and we spent a lot of time in nature and it sort of reminded me of, of, again, the things that have always been here and the sort of progress that is being made. And I think that, you know, you can't pour from an empty cup, like we do need to kind of embody joy and and be joyful and, 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 you know, pay attention to the positive things so that we can also continue to have energy to keep pushing. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. And God, what is it about being in nature that just really puts things into perspective? Like it, it never ceases to amaze me that literally even going for a walk in a park will completely change how I feel. It's, it's kind of insane. And it just I think it's because it, it's kind of like, these trees have been here forever. And like, I'm this new person on this earth. And then you start having like an existential crisis, but like in a good way. Yeah, I think it's so important to and again, it it reminds us of that, you know, how everything's connected, like, things have been taken, like, there's a really lovely quote as well, actually, it says, adopt the pace of nature, its secret is patience. Wow. And it sort of reminds you like, yeah, the tree took hundreds of years to grow, like, you know the grass has been here for ages like it's not a rush like you don't have to time is long inshallah you know like you have time yeah yeah and like I think that growth is something that I always kind of did want to speed up when I was like in my 20s I was just like come on I just need to grow I just need to do this I need to do that and I've really come to appreciate that slow kind of organic pace of how growth just comes to you as long as you're open to it yeah it's it's really nice and and I um I don't know it's it's definitely something that I feel like I appreciate a lot more but I think that's just a part of life you get older and you start appreciating weird shit that you did not give a shit about when you were younger. I just finished reading um, A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle and honestly it's one of the best books I've ever read like it's such a life changer and he writes a lot about that and sort of you know being present and being kind of fully in the present moment and when you are that you align with kind of god I sound really woo woo these days but you I'm like, super into it <laughs> <laughs> you align with the woo-woo. kind of energy yeah. of the universe and it sort of gives more power to what it is that you're doing and like to the growth and to the to all of that and I think it's so true like if you're only ever doing things for the end result or trying to speed up time or whatever you're actually not in alignment anymore with yourself yeah. or with the world I mean, he articulated that much better than I ever could. But now I have to add that to my reading list after I read your book, which I'm legitimately like, you don't understand. Like, I was like, fuck, why did I not order this before? And I was like, oh my God, I'm like, I have to read this book. Like, I'm genuinely so excited. I was reading the reviews and also like, it was so nice to see 
these amazing reviews of your book that I are from Arab women, because I think I'm kind of used to, unfortunately, Arab women shitting on you for doing anything differently. So I'm like, this is really exciting that Arab women are being supportive of her. Like it, it made my heart <laughs> oh, so happy. But I, that's what I'm saying. I think that we're going in a, in a new direction. But I did want to ask you, is there anything in your book that you were kind of hesitant to put in there yeah. that you ended up putting in there a yeah. lot a lot honestly like I I'm very honest and open throughout the book so I talk about you know how I lost my virginity like I talk about sex I talk about like, like all which are all very scary things <laughs> as an Arab woman to say out loud yeah like even now I'm like shit you know <laughs> but yeah I wrote about all of these things and I think that I just felt like I had to do it like what like I there's no point. And actually my dad is such a G because I spoke to him about it before I wrote, I didn't actually let my parents read the book until it was published. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, I yeah, didn't you can't stop me now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was just like, no, I don't need to know what you think. But I spoke to him before um, I wrote it and I was saying, you know, I'm going to write about all of this stuff basically. And he very like such a G he literally was like, either do this properly or don't bother. Wow. I love your dad. Yeah. I literally love this man because for any dad to say that, let alone an Arab dad, I think that that's just incredible. Yeah. When, and he's right. You know, like if I'm going to do it half-heartedly and not actually speak about like the whole book's about freedom to be yourself and debunk shame and stuff. And then I'm going to allow myself to be shamed and therefore not speak like that just doesn't make exactly. sense. No, a hundred percent. I I think that he was so right for saying that to you. And also like, I'm really glad that even though these things were difficult for you to share, you still shared them because yeah, that's, that's how the, the stigma kind of becomes non-existent. The more we talk about things, the less of a stigma there is. Yeah. The more we normalize these conversations because, and this is what I've spoken about on my podcast before, which is that like, everyone has sex, human beings have natural urges like this you're not a freak like it's you're not a bad person like and and you know I'm sure I'm gonna get another review I was like just thinking yeah. I was literally like so, cool waiting for that <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah someone's gonna say sex is haram um I should really just make that the title of this episode <laughs> but no like honestly like it just like why are we making women out to be these horrible people? And also like, no one is saying this to men also. Like if an Arab man were to write about that, I really don't think he would have thought that much about it. Maybe he would have thought about it a little bit, but definitely not as much as an Arab woman has to think about it or consider it. But it's definitely like, I very much had to kind of take account of my my privilege as well. You know, like I, and I think, and my dad actually said this, he said, if you lived in Egypt, this would be a much more, you wouldn't really be able to write this book. Like I think, right. I think that I, I've been afforded room because people consider me British. Yeah. 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 And which is, again, it's, it is a, I think that you seem like you're aware of it. I'm definitely aware of it. And you know, people ask me questions like, how did you move out? And I'm like, I just told my parents, Hey, yeah. I'm moving out. Like it wasn't, there was nothing that there was no convincing. There was no, and, 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 I didn't realize it until it happened. Like, and people were asking me, they were like, Oh my God, how do you do this? Like, I want to do this. And I'm like, Oh shit. Like, I think that I just have really cool parents. And I don't, I never thought that they were cool growing up. I thought that they were strict. And then I met other people and I realized like, no, my parents are actually not as strict as I thought yeah, they were. Yeah, But yeah, the importance I think of kind of just acknowledging that as well, you know? Yeah. 
it, it, and I think that it is important for us to acknowledge it so that people don't feel like, well, what the fuck is wrong with my family? And why are they not cool with this? It's everyone's family is different. And everyone's parents are more or less understanding about different topics. And I think that the only thing that I can encourage is communicating. And also, I talk about this a lot, humanizing our parents. I think it's important to recognize they are human beings. They are not these magical, mythical creatures. They are not perfect. They are not free from mistakes. They're growing and learning alongside us. Yeah. So I think it's important to kind of remember that, that they are kind of just figuring it out too. They don't know what the fuck they're doing. They're yeah. just kind of doing what they think they should be doing and doing what they think is right. And and if we talk to them about what we need, as difficult as it may be, it's still a conversation worth having. And they're also raising us in cultures that are alien to them in many ways. That's a lot, a lot of, you know, my parents didn't grow up in in, in London. Like, so and actually something I touch on in the book as well is this idea of like Western behavior and Eastern behavior and the fear of kind of being um, tainted by what other people are doing. But I think, again, that's the importance of sort of having open conversations because then you can trust your children to make the right decisions or, you know, what the right decision is for them because they've actually been empowered to do so. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's something that I'm seeing my siblings who are older than me and they have children who are like, I have a niece who's 25. I have nieces who are like in their twenties and I'm seeing my siblings have these very open relationships with their kids where they can talk to them about anything. And there's nothing scary about them, but scary about it to them, which is something that I didn't, I think that we're so kind of conditioned to believe that our parents are going to get mad at us if we do anything that's like out of the norm or what we consider to be the norm, that it's this whole daunting experience. But I think that, I don't know about you, but anytime I've spoken to my parents about something that I really thought they were going to be pissed about, they were almost never really pissed about it. I think what's so, what's so difficult sometimes though, is like, you know, okay, we were saying that our parents are chill and that they let us move out and whatever, all of this stuff. But then there's this, and I found this really interesting when writing my book, because again, my parents are very liberal, but then there's this idea of what I called the invisible jury, which is the opinion basically of like every other random person in the world. And like the people that your parents see like every six years, like their opinion still matters, you know? Um, And I think that that's something that kind of follows us overseas and wherever we are, basically it's, there's so many people involved in, our own making of our moral conscience. That's so true. And my mom literally tells me like, block this person on Instagram. I don't want them to see your Instagram posts. Not because my mom is like ashamed of me, but she just doesn't want to have to deal with this person putting their opinions out there. Like my mom is just like, let's just like avoid it. And I'm like, mama, why do you even care? Like people are going to think what they think regardless. Like nothing I say or do is going to change that. You know what I mean? Like if they believe me to be a bad person, me blocking them on Instagram is only going to further reinforce that. Like, oh, see, she is a bad person. She has to hide from me. And And I think that that's something that I've kind of just accepted about my parents that 
I can't change that part of them. They are, they will always kind of be concerned with what random people who they literally see every six years think. And I've just accepted that. It frustrated me for a long time because I was like, mom, like you're an intelligent, educated, progressive woman. Why do you care? Like, why do you care? And she just can't help it. It's so ingrained in who she is that it's something that I just had to accept. Yeah, and it's definitely something that I personally had to work through even myself, you know, the the kind of this burden, again, of what other people are going to think. And I think it ties into everything. Like, oh, I, another word that I hate along with Aib is like, I'm like, honestly, oh my God. just fuck off. Literally, I got into a fight with my uncle's wife the last time I saw her. Well, not a fight. <laughs> it turned into a fight, but I didn't mean for it to turn into a fight. She said, which for those of you who don't speak Arabic, it basically means like, you're next to get married, essentially, right? Or like, you'll be married soon. It's basically just like, you're not a person yet. So hopefully you get married soon. Yeah, and she basically. said, she said, and then she said, like, hopefully the next time I see you will be at your wedding. Wow. And I literally was like, why are you so obsessed with me getting married? That's exactly what I said to her. I said, why are you so obsessed with me getting married? And this is literally before I'm going about to leave to the airport. Like this is like me saying farewell to her, but I decided I'm like, fuck this. I'm going to ask her, why are you so obsessed with me getting married? And she like turns to my other aunt and she's like, do you hear how she's talking to me? And I'm like, I'm not speaking to you like in a rude way. I'm asking you, why are you so obsessed with me getting married? Like, I'm just genuinely interested. Why do you care so much? And she's like, because you, that's how you start your life. And I was like, see, that's where you and I differ. My life started a long time ago. When I get married, that person will be my partner. They will not be the reason my life begins. Yes. And that's why you and I are not the same. And that's okay. I respect that about you. So please respect this about me, that you and I are not the same. We do not view marriage in the same way. For her, marriage was the beginning of her life. And even though I disagree with that, I still can respect it. And I think that's so important. And I think a lot of older generations just don't care to respect that, just that we don't view marriage in the same way that they do. Well done. Honestly, that's so well said. That's so well said because I think, and I think it's so debilitating for us and also for, for men, like for the whole world, you know, like it basically puts us in, at this disadvantage where we're never going to be able to have an equal partnership or we're never going to be able to approach life or marriage or anything on equal footing if we're already not whole people until we get married where men are obviously men are living their right. lives right, right right you know so we're not whole people until someone deems us worthy to put a ring on our finger like where where does that leave us like where do we go from here and it's not even just Arab society. It's all, yeah. it's, it's literally global that women are trained at a young age to feel like the only way for them to have real value is for a man to tell them, I would like to commit my life to yeah. you. You are my, and it's just like, I reject that. I reject that so intensely, maybe too intensely because I, the only way I feel validated is through myself. And that is what works for me. And that's what feels healthy to me. Obviously, everyone has their own path. But I find that me valuing and validating myself is the only thing that makes sense. Because the second I start relying on someone to seek value in myself, the second I'm putting my emotions in their hands, and I know I am in control of my own emotions. Yeah. So why am I putting that in someone else's hands? And is it 
lovely to be married? Of course it is. It's nice. It's nice to have a partner. It's nice to have someone you can rely on. But that's not how you begin your life. It's just kind of like an evolution of your life. It's like an addition too, right? Something that like, it's not like you're half and now you're whole. It's like, I'm a whole person. You're a whole person. Let's be whole people together. Yes, 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 yes. And I think that that's what, at least I believe, helps sustain a long lasting relationship, which I also talk about this a lot that getting marriage is married is not an accomplishment. What I view as an accomplishment is having a long lasting, healthy yes. relationship. I applaud people who can have these long, healthy relationships. I'm like, wow, that's incredible. Taking two different people, putting, bringing them together and making it work like this is incredible to me, but just getting married. I'm like, I really want to tell my aunt, like, bitch, if I wanted to get married, I would have been married. Anyone, like, you know what I mean? Anyone. Yeah. Like, that's yeah, not like, the hard part. It's not, it's not that hard. Like I have a lot of cousins. <laughs> I have a lot of cousins in Palestine who love marrying their cousins. So you know what? It could have happened, but it's, it's not something to be proud of yourself for doing. I think that there's so much more to feel proud of. It's like, and if you are married and you take pride in that, I'm happy for you. But I think that ultimately for me, what I view as like a success is just having a long lasting, healthy relationship. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and you know, doing things for ourselves as well. Like I'll never forget, it was just before my book came out. So last summer and I was in Egypt and I bumped into like one of my mom's friends basically on the beach and her daughter was about to get married. So I was like, oh, congratulations on your like daughter's wedding or whatever. And then she was like, oh, you know, we're so, so tired of hearing about your book on social media. Where is the man in your life? And then she kind of like gestured to the MTC and she was like, maybe oh you'll God. find someone there. And I was just literally like, what the actual fuck have I just witnessed? Like, it was honestly so crazy. And I think that, again, there's this impetus on like, oh, well, okay, cool. You wrote a book, but like, where's your husband though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they're, they're, it's like you literally, you're not, a people treat you like you're not a person. Well, you're a child. And, and I think a lot of the time, you know, especially in Middle Eastern in co- countries, you as a girl, especially very often live at home until you get married. So you are a child basically living at home until you get married. So I get that. But I think it is very important what you said that actually this is cross-cultural pressure Um, and I think it is very important to stress because a lot of these things, and I really realized that when I was writing my book, like all of the expectations that are placed on us as Middle Eastern women are also placed on women from any culture and any religion. It's just how much do we actually, you know, how far have we moved past it potentially? How much do we actually allow it to take like have an impact on our lives but we're all living in a patriarchal world and the messaging for women is the same cross-culturally a hundred percent like i i have friends who are you know have parents who are agnostic who have parents who are jewish who have parents who are christian whatever and they all still get the same shit which is like so like are you dating anyone do you think it's serious are you gonna get married like you know what are you doing like I have friends who are like very successful in their careers and their parents are still and they're not Arab they're still on their case about getting married and there is something nice about that because I'm like okay so we're in this together cool cool and 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 even with my parents, like they go through waves. I don't know about you, but like, they'll say nothing to me. And then out of nowhere, 
for like a month straight, my dad will be like nagging me. Like, what about this guy? What about that guy? What about this guy? What about that guy? I'm like, Baba, like, what the fuck? Like, you were just so chill for six months. Like, where is this coming from? But I think like we were talking about before, it does kind of, they, they value the opinions of other people. And I think usually the impetus is someone saying something to them like, oh, your daughter, Noor. Yeah, she's doing good, but she's not married. Yikes. Yeah. Like you should probably, they make my parents feel like they're failures for me not being married. Yeah, I think and then, you're right. I think it probably is someone else saying something a lot of the time. And I think it's also them, sometimes they get afraid where they're like, this is what I have been told and what I've been raised to believe is like a good life. So, yes, yes, and yes. they want us to have good lives, right? They want us to be happy and stuff. And that's what they think is the, is the way. And, and my dad says that to me all the time. He's like, look how much I love your mom and how much your mom loves me. Like, don't you want that? I'm like, of course I want that. Don't be an asshole. Like, of course I want, you know, I think I, it's, it's okay to, simultaneously want to find someone that you want to share your life with, but also being okay with the fact that it's not kind of the only thing about your life that you find important or find, you know, joy in. Like I find joy in just feeling accomplished and working hard and, and feeling independent, honestly, is the best feeling for me. Yeah. So it you can care about getting married because I think there's also this other kind of extreme perspective, which is like, fuck marriage and whatever. And I think if that's what makes you happy, go for it. And I would like to kind of find someone who could be my partner, but it's not something that's going to prevent me from moving forward with my life. Like I'm not just waiting around for it to happen. If it happens, cool, awesome, I'm down, let's do it. But if it doesn't happen... I'm going to also be fine and be happy and find different places to find contentment and joy. Yeah, well, because otherwise you're more pressured to settle, right? And I feel like it's definitely be, uh, better to be alone than to be with like a douchebag, for example. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I mean, like, honestly, it's like, I've been with douchebags before. I don't want to do that again. No. Like, you know what I mean? Like, learn from your mistakes, Nor. Like, don't do that again because all it does is create unnecessary stress in your life. And it ultimately did kind of stand in the way of me furthering my career. And there's no denying that, that when you're in a stressful situation, it's going to affect you negatively in all aspects of your life. And so because I know this, I'm like, no, I need to have these standards because that's the only way for me to be happy. And I don't want to be unhappy. No. Well, especially I think as women, again, we're so much raised to sort of be caregivers and be giving and put ourselves to the side and, you know, take care of someone else. So like, if we're in that situation, we can, I've been in that situation before where I put myself aside and I've fully been like giving, 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 giving. And I yeah. think again, what a partnership is, is give and take, right? So if you're with someone who's very happy to only get take and not give you anything in return, that's a very shitty situation as well. So it's kind of finding someone who's gonna be an equal partner. And that's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is what you were saying about like, you know, being a woman and being very giving, I, I'm almost, I almost feel like I need to unlearn that to a certain degree, not where I'm like not giving anything. But I think that I was raised in a household where like love was given very like unconditionally and passionately, you know, fucking Arabs. But that's something that not all people appreciate the way I kind of appreciate. And I think that I'm, I feel like almost like I need to reconsider if that's the best approach 
at least in the beginning of a relationship. But then there's also a part of me that's like, well, you shouldn't have to change yourself. But then I just kind of have this internal conflict conflict right now where I'm like, do I carry on just being this way where I'm a very kind of giving person? Or is that not serving me? Because if it's not serving me, maybe it is something that I need to reconsider. I think I, I think that a lot a lot as well. I always I always have that question. But I feel like if it's the right person or people, you know, whether it be friends or, you know, a potential partner or whatever, if it's the right person, they won't take advantage. Right. Right. That's, and that's kind of like the internal conflict that I have within myself of the last few weeks, fucking quarantine. I swear (laughs) to God, it's making me think about all sorts of things and like really too long in my head. Right. I'm a little too reflective at these times I'm like maybe I could reflect less maybe I should just go watch Netflix and stop (laughs) thinking so much about like uh, this non-existent situation in which I'm being too loving and caring I'm like no maybe I maybe I should go do something else but um yeah it's it's just so interesting and it's it like we were talking about before just kind of coming full circle it's so nice connecting with for me personally, with Arab women who were grow who were raised in, you know, outside of an Arab country and having sharing these similar experiences and feelings, there's something so lovely about it. And honestly, talking to you has been incredible. I'm so excited now more than ever to read your book. And I'm so, so glad that you took the time to come on the show as a guest. No, I've loved chatting to you. Honestly, I think it is just the best feeling to to connect. And I've actually recently launched a newsletter, um, The Greater Conversation, which comes out every week, basically in people's inboxes. And it's all like, each week, there's a different guest post from a Middle Eastern woman. And it's just in an effort to kind of continue that conversation so that we can all connect and sort of be emboldened, I suppose, in, in our own experiences and, and, you know, laugh with each other and kind of connect on all of these things that yeah. we're talking about today. I think it really just is so powerful and so important. And I'm definitely going to link that in the episode description of how you could sign up to your, to Alia's newsletter because I'm going to be doing that like literally once we're done. But what else, where else can people find you online, plug anything, your podcast, which I feel like I meant to talk to you about it, but we didn't, we kind of just talked about so many other things. But yeah, what, tell people where they can find your book, your podcast, all the things. Yeah, so I'm at Alia Moro on Instagram and Twitter, A-L-Y-A-M-O-O-R-O, my website, aliamoro.com, um, my book, The Greater Free is available worldwide um greater conversation newsletter i'm like wait what else do i what else (laughs) your podcast your podcast Podcast, bootleg magic um it's all on my socials basically so yeah yeah just follow her and i'll have everything linked below alia this was literally such a delight i feel like so inspired and i'm so glad that we had this conversation i want to just hang out irl now i know (laughs) i guess when the pandemic is over hopefully we can travel somewhere in america Americans can go places because we're literally on everyone's shit list. <laughs> but uh, as always, you guys, you can follow the podcast on Instagram at Arab American Psycho, where you'll see a lovely picture of Alia. And you can follow me on Instagram at Nor E. And I will talk to you guys next Sunday. <laughs>